Thank you for listening to this AdSet podcast. We'd like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional custodians on the lands on which this recording is taking place and to the elders past, present and emerging. In this podcast, we have once again asked Matt Brett to sit in the interviewing chair and our guest was Professor Sally Kift. And what a delight Sally was. She packed so much into the podcast, I can't believe that it only went for an hour. Sally covered so much ground from transition pedagogy to the recent review of the Australian Qualifications Framework. Make sure you check out our show notes to find many of the related links to the topics she covers. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Matt Brett and you're listening to another edition of a series of podcast conversations hosted by ADSET, the Australian Disability Clearinghouse for Education and Training, and also supported by the National Centre for Student Equity in Higher Education. I'm an adjunct fellow with the National Centre and also on the advisory group for ADSET. And amongst other things, I'm the Director of Academic Governance and Standards at Deakin University and a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne. It's my great privilege today to be speaking with Professor Sally Kift, President of the Australian Learning and Teaching Fellows, Professorial Fellow at the National Centre for Student Equity in Higher Education, former Deputy Vice-Chancellor Academic at James Cook University and former Professor of Law at Queensland University of Technology. You'll notice from that list of affiliations that Sally is uniquely positioned to discuss matters of student equity, particularly from a learning and teaching perspective. Welcome, Sally. Thanks, Matt. And I'm grateful to you and Adset and Neshi for the opportunity to speak with you today. Uh, let's get straight into it, Sally. So firstly, you've got a distinguished career in the law, in legal education, in university leadership and management, and with some field-defining contributions to student transition and student equity. Before we delve more deeply into some of these issues, can you first share with listeners why student equity matters to you and why it's featured so strongly throughout your career? I suppose, Matt, like many of my generation, it was my lived experience. I attended a state primary and secondary school. I was from a working class background. I was first in my family to attend at university, but I was extraordinarily fortunate to have parents with aspirations for my future education. And furtherly fortunate, I think, to have been the beneficiary of Gough Whitlam's free higher education in the 1970s. Uh, reflecting back, I think if cost was a factor, I may well not have gone to university. Um, as it was, I worked three part-time jobs to put myself through law school. So with that background, how could I be anything other, I think, than an advocate for widening participation when I think my life would have been so very different if I had um, not had the access to the opportunities that higher education provided. That's sort of the, the schooling background. And then when I got to university, um, I was a February baby, which of course is hugely interesting but that meant I was 16 when I first started at university so I was first in family 16 at a group of eight doing law what could possibly go wrong um, <laughs> a very strong sense of other I found it very hard to fit in um, Dr Seuss's fish out of water is probably the best way to describe how I felt about my experience and I was almost paralyzed with um, intellectual and social self-doubt I really didn't understand a single thing that was going on. Um, I think it probably wasn't quite so consequential back in the day because we didn't have to navigate an online learning system. I learnt most of what I needed to know from standing in queues to get you know, your ID card or the piece of paper about your course. Um, I was scared witless by the fear of failure, but I wasn't sure how to do anything to ensure non-failure failure, let alone success. I think I was a success if I was by accident. It was a series of fortunate events um, one of which was that at my peak, I could write, learn an A4 page in 15 minutes for those 100% closed book law exams whole year. That's, that's, um, that's quite a powerful motivator for, um, for interest in student equity. And I've, I've got to say, as you, as, as you were sort of recounting some of those experiences, um, they, they mirror many of my own, that, that sense of isolation in a group of eight when coming from a working class uh, background brought back vivid memories from my own experience as well. At that time, Sally, 16-year-old, Whitlam's fee-free fee era. How, how many uh, students from those kinds of backgrounds were, were around you? Were, you? were you conscious of that? Not at all conscious of it. Uh, what retained me at university was living in a residential college. And I had one friend that I walked over to law classes with. Um, the rest of my cohort, I quite keenly felt at the group of eight institution 
were second, third, fourth generation university students, most of whom seemed to have legal affiliations. And there I was in first year, not even being able to pronounce legal terms, which was quite mortifying. Nonetheless, Sally, you, you've um, progressed through that uh, degree, probably with a, a huge degree of, of um, uh, transformation in, in terms of your own social, cultural, uh, academic capital, etc. Can, can you maybe share with us a little bit as to, to what happened immediately after your experiences at university? So I was a further failure at that point, um, which is why I take careers and employability so, in, so seriously now. I was unaware that at the end of third year of my four-year law degree, you were supposed to have gone out and started your search for articles of clerkship in Queensland. That was a two-year um, work-integrated learning experience with a, with a master legal practitioner, as it was quaintly called back in the day. I thought about it midway through my fourth year because there was no prompt to do otherwise and I didn't have any of that social capital around that and put on my Katie's suit, that's Miller's for current generation people, um, and walked my CV around the mid-tier law firms because I'd missed out on all the, the top-tier law firms, which of course everyone was aspiring to from a group of eight firms. So, and then I enter into a whole other culture that I didn't really understand. I had to dictate letters. That was back in the day before computers. Um, we'd never learnt dictation at law school. And I'm not sure that we learnt particularly the skills that you need to adapt and survive in the world of work either. So that, that sense of, of, of um, yeah, maybe being the fish out of water and, and maybe not knowing the, the, the kinds of things that other people took for granted, was that a powerful driver for you in terms of the way in which you approached your, your, your teaching when, when you eventually uh, started as an academic at, in, in universities? Yes, so ab absolutely. I just wanted a better experience for my students potentially than I had. Um, I started teaching when my first daughter came along. So I really wanted a better higher education experience if that would be her desire than the one that I managed to scrape together. And I just thought we could do better as institutions, be more integrated and coherent, especially in the, for the first year experience. And so again, a series of fortunate events, I suppose, or not, um, I started at what was then the Nor University College of the Northern Territory, Northern Territory University, now Charles Darwin University, shifted to Brisbane on the birth of my second daughter with my family and worked for Griffith University for a couple of years. And then, and this is where my passion for first year came from, was put in charge as a fractional level B lecturer with a three-year-old and a five-year-old of a first year core subject that had 1100 first year students. I was lecturing, tutoring, managing the coordination of a passing parade of uh, full-time teachers. And you could imagine the sessional staff that had to equip the tutorial program there. And I was just left to it. And we were all running around doing busy work. And I just thought, what does this experience look like for, for first year students? So that's, I became, and this is a bit of a theme for me as well. I, I think you're about as agentic as your sphere of influence will let you be. So I became a first year coordinator and tried to do something about the first year experience at law school that moved on to becoming associate dean learning and teaching, only the second associate dean at the law school at QUT at that time. And then the wonderful Deputy Vice-Chancellor Academic David Gardner at QUT encouraged me to apply for a fellowship on, with the then Carrick Institute for Higher Education, which, then, which later became the Australian Learning and Teaching Council and the Office for Learning and Teaching. To my huge surprise, I was successful. I got a senior fellowship on the first year experience. And he took that as validation that there was something in this first year thing that I was going on about and moved me across to become a director of first year experience at QUT. That was the first uh, role of that nature in the institution at that time. That's probably around the time where you've, you've gone from doing really good things within a university to, to, to really gaining prominence on the national, uh, national stage. Uh, that, that fellowship was on transition pedagogy, as I, as I recall. Can you maybe share with listeners what transition pedagogy is and why it matters? 
So thanks for that, Matt. Well, as I may have indicated, a first year matters hugely and we shouldn't really be leaving students' success to chance. The opportunity to pursue the luxury, quite frankly, of a, of a dedicated research program around first year experience theorising was a boon and a wonderful experience for me. Um, we could talk in another life, I imagine, about the crippling absence of continued funding for Australian pedagogical R&D. That's a policy discussion in its own right. But I was one of 200, 126 fellows that were appointed under CARIC, ALTC or ALT. At the time of my fellowship in 2006, there was already an impressive body of research around the first year experience. But as Vincent Tinto, the great American educator, observed, we really hadn't made any particular or substantial gains in student retention and we hadn't managed to translate our research and theory into effective practice. So I was trying to respond to that with my fellowship around transition pedagogy and move from what I had experienced and I had implemented as essentially a fairly piecemeal approach of discrete initiatives, which often get left behind when people move on, to try to understand how we might be more holistic and sustainable in institution-wide approaches and enhancements around bridging that academic and support and administrative divide that everyone feels so keenly. So I thought the missing first year piece was the curriculum. There was a curriculum focus. And I wanted transition pedagogy to harness the curriculum as the academic and social organising device, or as Craig McGuinness used to refer to it, as the glue that holds knowledge and the broader student experience together. Because students really shouldn't have to look outside the curriculum for disparate piecemeal efforts to support their first year experience. So I wanted first year experience very much to be everybody's business, but focused on the curriculum and to come in from the periphery of the curriculum where I saw all, if I might term it as the first year generation of initiatives, sorry, the first generation of first year initiatives languishing. So all the, you know, you come to university go to orientation, go and get careers counselling, go and get academic language and learning support. So all siloed, disconnected and decontextualised from the curriculum to come in from the periphery of, of that and say, well, the focus really should be on what students have in common, which is their learning experiences mediated through curriculum rather than problematising their diversity and difference. And that's what I thought was this next generation approaches around um, first year experience maturity, a focus on curriculum. And then we've come subsequently to talk about third generation approaches is where this is all scaled up institution wide and wherever they look, they can't escape as being intentional, coordinated and coherent. So I think the three distinctive features of transition pedagogy then were that curriculum focus, which led to a coherence about the quality of the student experience over the student life cycle. Secondly, the whole of institution, whole of student engagement, because that had the potential to deliver a coordinated and integrated engagement. And you could proactively intervene in a just in time, just for me, just in case support for students in the context of the discipline and engender that sense of belonging. And then the enabling capacity, which was the third piece, which was academic and professional staff partnerships, working with students to engage in what was good, solid, supportive, inclusive, universal design around the first year experience. So just to replay that a little bit in my, my language, uh, you, you have gone from experiences in a single discipline law, you know, recognise the deficiencies and challenges of that, You've, you've been in the thick of that, you know, looking after, managing that for first year and big first year subjects whilst managing a young family, et cetera. And in a short space of time, you've then uh, taken that knowledge and uh, brought that to not only every discipline within the university, but pretty much every university in the country. That, that's really quite a, a huge, um, hugely important you know, piece of work. Do, do you have any kind of reflections or you know, musings that you can share around just how easy or difficult it is to be able to go from that single discipline approach to the multidisciplinary approach to the whole of institution and whole of sector approach to these things. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? And I've listened to Mary's podcast and I'm in awe and a great girl fan of, of Mary Kelly, your previous podcast guest. 
and I learned a lot from Mary in my time at QUT and also I should say from Col McCowan who was the careers and employability um, had the careers and employability remit there it is it is difficult but it's learning leadership I think it's learning leadership deployed wherever you are so as a first year subject coordinator or as a first year uh, coordinator for the whole of the first year as an associate dean learning and teaching I was exceedingly fortunate in that David Gardner, the DVCA, DVC academic at QUT, saw some promise in this and was prescient enough to appoint me to that director of first year experience position. And then it sort of took off. It is a series of fortunate events to conjure with lemony snicket. Um, the timing was exceedingly fortunate. At the time of my fellowship work over 2006 to 2009, um, and in the early years of the fellowship and transition pedagogy socialization across the sector, that coincided with the release of the Bradley Review and the policy ramp up of the demand driven system and the widening participation agenda. And my strong sense was that people were hungry for assistance with how to manage this new diversity. So I managed in my fellowship records, I did 160 presentations over a year to 6,000 different academic professional staff and student organisations. And that has, I'm still riding that wave. <laughs> I'm still speaking about first year experience internationally. But thinking about the demand-driven system, Bradley, and widening participation, I think also transition pedagogy's philosophy has now become embedded in many of the student success strategies and institutional policy statements since the Higher Education Standards Panel mandated institutional retention strategies in 2007. So again, there had to be some theoretical framing of that. When the Higher Education Standards Panel redid the higher, the higher education standards framework in 2015. Fortunately, sorry, I'm stumbling about, about trying to be a little modest about this, but I was just really chuffed that they came and asked me about transition pedagogy and its six integrative curriculum principles. And you actually see them now reflected in standard 1.3 orientation and progression. So unsee that, Matt, right now. Um, and you see references there to uh, strategies to support successful transition, assessing the needs and preparedness of students on entry, early assessment and formative feedback, access to informed advice and timely support, identifying and supporting students. So all of those principles that we'd been playing with and working with and developed a shared language around, which certainly helps moving practice forward, became enmeshed in the regulatory framework. And of course now, as you're as everyone is well aware, very high policy stakes of early student success and a positive first year experience have been sharpened by the reputational focus on attrition. Attrition is one of the 11 risk factors in Texas risk assessments. So attrition for the, for the lucky people that haven't had to come across that idea, attrition from the census date in first year, the students who don't return by the census date in second year. And the new performance funding regime also counts um, first year domestic students' attrition as one of its core measures. The Texas recently released good practice note also talks about transition pedagogy. So I suppose this is in, I'm trying to be responsive to the, to the answer around, has it been difficult? Well, it's always a hearts and minds exercise, having a shared language, having learning leadership support across the institutional remit and in the sector and then having the policy and regulatory settings turned in your favour were a bit of a help. Yeah, I've got to um, say Sally, it's it's one thing to be humble enough to say that there are a whole, whole range of, of uh, fortunate sort of coincidences and, and um, uh, opportunities that, that presented themselves. It's, it's another to actually um, take advantage of those and to, to do meaningful work that um, opens or takes advantage of those policy windows to actually embed and, and entrench reform. And I think what you've just outlined, um, many of those uh, developments in the sector that have, have embedded uh, consideration of the first year experience and the importance of that can be traced back to your work. I, I think it's a, a hugely um, important contribution you've made to Australian higher education. 
So, Matt, if I might also interrupt you and, and, and say that it's, and it's not just been a national agenda. A lot of the research was international at the time. So we've, we've developed an, an Australasian approach, I think, in conjunction with New Zealand with fine educators over there, such as Nick Zepke in particular and Linda Leach. But internationally, the focus has also been on transitions. And so transition pedagogy has been managed to morph into transitions over the whole of the student life cycle. So pathways into through and out, including capstone experiences. We amused ourselves at one point, colleagues at QUT and myself by conjuring with FYE squared, which was first year experience and final year experience and how you needed to start with the end in mind and close the loop on the first year and final year. So um, transition pedagogy has been applied in that in that way it's been applied across many disciplines and different cohorts one of my proudest moments was talking to the deputy deans of graduate research the d-dogs around hdr first year experience but international equity students obviously in different contexts such as mental health sessional staff student guidance officers i've done a lot of talks with student guidance officers but also with practitioner groups so this is the important whole of institution work between academic and professional staff so with so i've spoken about transition pedagogy with careers people equity as i mentioned disability support services student support services learning advisors you know the but once you have the shared language and try and bring everyone around the curriculum design table, then I think you've got a momentum for change which just makes sense and is sensible and sustainable in resource poor environments. Yeah, it's um, strikes me from what you just said, Sally, that the uh, the, the the origins of this uh, transition pedagogy from first year experience and it's uh, rippling out to to final year to, to postgraduate to uh, yeah, specific uh, cohorts like disability mental health etc is is a uh, you know highlights the, the the general applicability of, of, of the work that you've done which is kind of fantastic um, for anyone that knows me you'll know that I'm uh, interested and, and passionate about sort of disability issues and mental health issues and I'm glad that you raised uh, mental health and disability as as uh, priorities in transition uh, pedagogy I, I know in earlier parts of your career you've you have had some involvement with mental health in the the law curriculum um so maybe just ask you to reflect a little bit on on the the importance of of the curriculum to student mental health and well-being yes well it's a it's a vexed issue and again another international issue which is quite normalizing as we face these enormous challenges across the sector that not just it's in our own institution and across institutions, it's across sectors. So talking to the school guidance officers, they, they struggle with uh, secondary education, struggles with mental health issues and internationally, and then we've got some great work coming out of the UK. So we know, don't we, that the weight of evidence is that there's large numbers of both students and staff that are experiencing poor mental health in our institutional environments. Um, the National Union of Students has done work on this, um, talking about that only seven out of ten, sorry, seven out of ten students rate their mental health as only fair or poor. We just need to think about that for a moment. The Origin Under the Radar report in 2017 said that 25% of young students experience mental ill health in any year. But it's not just the young students, it's mature students, mature age students as well. So one of our NESHI colleagues, Nicole Crawford, currently has an equity fellowship on supporting the mental health of mature age students in regional and remote Australia. So all the work that we do in our institutions can do harm or do well for mental health. And from my own background in law, we knew that we had a huge problem uh, and that was, an that was an international problem as well. So we had some research done in Australia. Students start first year in law school as happy and healthy as any other students, but very quickly over the course of the first year, exhibit signs of mental distress, 30% higher than the general population, 17% higher than medical students. And that, did, that doesn't get better over the course of the degree, it potentially, Decrease, their mental health decreases over the course of the degree and then they enter what I might fondly call as a member as a past member of it a dysfunctional profession in that regard so we need to do something in law my good colleague Rachel Field got an AL, 
ALTC, Australian Learning Teaching Council Fellowship to investigate curriculum design, alleviating mental mental health and, and supporting mental well-being. Um, we have a regulatory requirement around this. The higher education standards framework specifically mentions supporting students' mental health in, section, in standard 2.3. And there's a corp, corporate responsibility in 6.1.4 around um, steps to develop and maintain institutional environments that foster mental health of students and staff. You see my lawyer background coming out there. So the project that you were involved in, Matt, with um, with colleagues, with my good colleague Rachel Field and other colleagues at the University of Melbourne on student mental wellbeing, I think served us very well in terms of thinking about how, again, we might focus our efforts on the thing that students have in common, which is their learning in the curriculum. And at the risk of trying to reduce it to its most basic components, I just think well-designed curriculum could go a long way towards supporting our students' mental health and well-being, by which I mean curriculum that is optimally organised and sequenced, where there's an alignment, as we know we must have, between the learning and teaching approaches and the assessment and the, and the learning outcomes, um, that, that we encourage activities that promote deep learning and student engagement and that our assessment in particular encourages desired behaviours and informs learning. So one of the curriculum initiatives I've been taken with most recently coming out of the assessment centre at your institution, Matt, at Cradle at Deakin, is the focus on developing students, what we might call assessment and feedback literacies. And that's just the idea that we help students understand what the terminology protocols and processes that are associated with assessment in higher education look like and how they might engage with them to be confident learners. I really do need to talk, I think, about staff mental health as well. Great work, as I said, coming out of the, out of the UK. Um, they did a big um, freedom of information request on the mental health of higher education staff and described higher education as an anxiety, as an anxiety machine, not easy to say, for staff and saw an escalation in the poor mental health of uni staff um, in terms of counselling referrals and occupational health referrals. There's also been work on how we help staff again to help students around mental health. There's been a wonderful initiative in the UK with the Student Minds, which is a student mental health charity. And they've worked hard to produce a university mental health charter, which has been created out of consultation with thousands of staff and students. And they've also produced what they've called a well, the wellbeing thesis to support um, postgraduate research journey. They're now moving to work on the curriculum piece. So again, we can join the dots on an international agenda around mental health. I, I, as you were talking, Sally, I'm, I'm kind of drawn back to your earlier comments around the, the feelings of uh, maybe non-traditional learners in, in higher education that are entering uh, the first time uh, and, and, and maybe feeling isolated, maybe feeling stressed, etc. And that, that certainly yeah, brought back memories for me in my own uh, experience. But I, I think it also reminds me just, just how um, how much things have improved across time uh, since maybe you were yeah, first year as a as a you know, law student and I was a first year science student. Um, it, it does fill me with some optimism that that higher education is is getting uh, better and better all the time. So mental health incredibly important as we've discussed, Sally. Um, are these mental health issues likely to be exacerbated by COVID nineteen? Um, do you have any observations that you can share about the sector's response at this time? Well, it's, it's been an amazing feat, hasn't it? And it's just awe-inspiring to watch. There's just been exemplary examples of leadership and whole of institution, collaboration and cooperation, just to do this thing and get it and, and unproblematically and at the, with the best of intention and to the best that we can. And I've seen some great step-ups in leadership with constant mental health check-ins and well-being check-ins. We've got um, 
pet wars going on between institutions as who's got the best set of pets, uh, Zoom backgrounds that are just astounding. So people are, are doing what you would hope that they might do in this shared sense of endeavour or misery, whatever, uh, is really helping, I think, and it's bringing out the best in our institutions all working together, and not in a kumbaya way, but in a very real agentic and collegial sharing of good practice and supporting each other. I mean, what a time to be alive for technology enhanced learning advisors, really, and, their, and the appreciation now of their skill set across the sector. I was quite taken by uh, some colleagues at the University of Colorado in Denver who have termed what we've done panicagogy. I'm sure I've mispronounced that, you know, panic plus pedagogy, panicagogy. And what they've emphasised in that is the skill of critical compassion. So the ability to look at the situation as it really is and just to try and figure out what's going on, what you can actually do and be compassionate and caring of yourself and your students in what you can and what they can do and to in, engage in some bonding around that. I mean, a very, a very good example that I've seen, which came from my own institution some time ago in the Diploma of Higher Education was to have a weekly resilience strategy, which I just thought was brilliant. But just in time, as I would suggest, weekly resilience strategy to help students cope and deal with stress in which we normalise because it's normal to be stressed and, and feel disconnection at this time and but trying to encourage some sense of control taking back so just little hints about taking time to relax um, breaking down your goals into chunks that are achievable celebrating your various achievements of goals knowing your strengths and keep building on them trying to build healthy relationships keep the big picture in mind and this is what we know also from from your work um, in the student wellbeing OLT project for, at the University of Melbourne, Matt, with you and, and your colleagues, this notion that if we can, can harness autonomous motivation, so that's doing things that, in, that are intrinsically interesting and satisfying and facilitate valued goals, that's enhanced by experiences of belonging and positive relationships and autonomy and confidence building. So it's good to have all that in mind. And I'm seeing that just done in an exemplary way on a pinhead in terms of the turnaround time across the sector. And just to uh, clarify, um, the, the project that Sally's talking about is the Uni Student Wellbeing Project. And also to clarify, my role in that project was maybe a little more peripheral than, than central. I think um, the work of Wendy Larkin and Rachel Field, uh, Chebeck. Um, and Abby Brooker. Abby Brooker is, is um, yeah, far, far exceeds my own contribution to that project, but it's, it's, it is a really good... Uh, it's all a collaborative endeavour, Matt. Really good uh, piece of work. Uh, I, I agree wholeheartedly that, that it's been an amazing collaborative endeavour and a globally collaborative endeavour as people have been sharing resources and ideas about how to how to respond to the post-COVID-19 world. Do you have any thoughts, Sally, as to whether or not uh, students will be performing better or worse than expected? Will we, will we see them uh, perhaps having poorer success rates or better success rates because they're at home, they don't have distractions? Will we have higher or lower satisfaction? Will they be recognising the, the steps that universities have put in place to support them or their expectations of what university might have been uh, be, be, be um, would they be more disappointed by what they've experienced in, over the course of this semester? Any, any thoughts about that? It's, it's difficult, isn't it? And we don't want to slip into problematising and, and deficit conceptions, which is, something, which is something as equity practitioners we would always um, rile against. I think, I think my sense is that universities are really stepping up and the learning leadership across institutions and their academic and professional and student partnerships have stepped up in this, you know, make the best of a, of a situation which none of us could have anticipated or necessarily wanted in the undergraduate sphere, which is where I think the, a, a lot of the tricks and traps and tips will, will come to roost. That was a very mixed metaphor there. 
Um, I've always thought that the job of institutional leadership is to try and get the context and the institutional settings right for staff so they can get it right for students. So students can focus on that difficult or easy learning that they have to do. So as a Deputy Vice-Chancellor Academic, I always thought my role was sort of clearing the way and taking responsibility for that so that good colleagues could just charge ahead. It's a, there's a lot of moving parts in this and it's going to, uh, I've heard some initial reports that attrition out of the delayed census dates isn't as bad as perhaps might have been predicted, but it's going to be very difficult to say with any certainty until we get those data in. There's been a lot of necessary busy work around this, obviously around the technology enhanced learning support for curriculum design and that delivery ramp up and that transformation at extraordinary speed, which is an existential challenge all of itself. Institutions are grappling with budgets and student pipelines and numbers. I saw two institutions today, this is just before the Anzac Day holiday, that now think they're probably going to be eligible for job seeker, and we just need to let that penetrate for a moment. That's 30% of their revenue. They think they'll be down. We've had to deal with IT infrastructure and capability, including the delivery beyond the great firewall of China, with managing anxiety, regulator anxiety and um, academic and, and managerial anxiety around contract cheating and remote and then student anxiety around remote proctoring of exams. We've had to consider new assessment regimes, how to manage will and placements in this new world, understanding government, government intent and the financial implications, for example, of the recent announcement of the higher education certificates that might be able to be offered at levels five to nine of the Australian Qualifications Framework. But the things that I think will actually make the difference in this environment. So I, I understand and, and know that all that work is and necessarily must be transacted. But I think we've got other issues around big issues around coordination and consistency and coherence of student and staff communications. A big one about how to support students 24 seven. So this shift from really what has been an on-campus nine to five mindset to how we support students in the online environment and after hours. And what we do with our policy environments and how we how we make changes around that. So in terms of student success and their well-being and their continued retention on into the next progression, we really have to think seriously and a number of institutions have done this and we'll have to now look to their policy and administrative environments as to how to enact it around fails not counting and student election to take a pass or a fail or a grade, I'm sorry, a pass fail rather than a grade, um, inevitable requests for extensions. It's so many moving parts, Matt, a very long winded way of saying, I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. And I think we'll be dealing with this for some time to come, but on the positive side, which is not my natural resting state, I think there'll be great learnings to come out of this. And I think we will have made that shift into thinking more sensitively and inclusively about how we support the learning success of all students. So I've been thinking if there is any silver lining to the COVID-19 cloud, it probably is that equity considerations and meeting, mediating diversity have become mainstreamed. COVID-19 has disadvantaged so many students now that attention to inclusion has quickly become I think a whole system imperative rather than just a cohort specific imperative. The research resources and supports available that originally targeted equity students, I think have become universally applicable now. I see that for example, Neshi has already collated a fabulously rich collection in this regard on its website, including of course, Cathy Stone's seminal articulation of the principles for improving student outcomes in online learning. I think so. The the way in which you have just outlined the those many moving parts and the complexity of those just speaks volumes of your 
knowledge and insight into the uh, the, the mechanics and the, the challenges and the uh, the ways of optimizing a, a very complex higher education system. Thank thank you for for, for sharing that. I, I'm also really struck by the uh, earlier words that you made around critical compassion. You know, a real focus on resilience. And I think if we can bring uh, the, those values to to the to the table for all of these very, very challenging things that we're dealing with at the moment, the, the impact on students and staff will be, the adverse impact on students and staff will be, uh, will, will be uh, minimised. Um, just further to that, Sally, uh, this broad vista of, of higher education uh, kind of complexity that you just laid out um, is, is in, in, in part uh, indicative of maybe why you were called to be uh, part of the review panel for the Australian Qualifications Framework. I wonder if you can maybe share with listeners any any thoughts you might have on on opportunities uh, to advance equity and you know, keeping in mind that the now almost everyone is an equity uh, student or disadvantaged student given what's going on. Are there opportunities to, to advance equity through uh, proposed changes to the AQF? So thanks for conjuring now with the AQF, um, Australian Qualifications Framework. Who knew that that would be such a great gig? I really do probably need to get out more. Um, I really need to acknowledge the expert panel of which I was a member that was led, again, very expertly by our national icon, Peter Noonan, um, who was one of the authors on the Bradley Report. And as you would like to expect in the context of Industry 4.0 and changes to the world of future work and how we bring all citizens along with us on that journey. The revised, excuse me, the revised AQF that we were, that, that, that we have recommended has very strong equity underpinnings. We wanted this revised version of the AQF, which is a quantum leap and is not going to be easy, but these times require, I think, quite bold moves. And so this is where we're trying to put this up as a bit of a blueprint, as a, as a future critical piece for enabling, as enabling in infrastructure for the world of future work. Um, the AQF really needs now to help shape a future in which central economic and policy goals, social policy goals to widen participation in education and training must be central. That was, I said central twice then, so central is obviously very important. Um, and we need to improve educational attainment levels. One of the things that really struck me out of all the work that we did in the AQF panel over um, a very intense 12 month or so period is that lifelong learning now must become a practical reality for all. So when we look at participation rates for our most disadvantaged cohorts, we are going to have to lift those levels of participation and attainment. There's no ifs or buts about it. Young people will need to have well-informed appreciation of the purpose of the different purpose of the qualifications and older and older adults as they come to back into education and training need to trust qualifications and their outcomes that, that will be relevant and, and help them provide for themselves and their families. So the equity underpinnings, I think, were very strong. I think the particular aspects of what has been proposed go to the equity agenda in a couple of very specific ways. First, which might not seem necessarily obvious, around credit pathways and recognition we, there were, in the work that was commissioned for the expert panel, it became, it, it was very clear in case it was not otherwise clear to any of the actors in all of the education sectors, that credit recognition and recognition of prior learning has not been well dealt with across the sector, despite the, um, the pathway policy that exists under the AQF. So trying to provide more detailed guidance on recognition of prior learning in, a, in the policy way that then we need to tie back into the regulatory frameworks, I think is going to be quite critical and a, and a great boon. So that when, for example, recently displaced workers do the Minister's Higher Education Certificate, which is not an AQF qualification, we can assure that that learning will be 
given credit for and recognition for in an AQF qualification later on. Huge piece around that. But the piece that I was most proud of was the work that the expert panel did on um, shorter form credentials. Uh, everyone hears that and thinks micro-credentials, but the piece I'm going to direct attention to was around enabling education. Um, enabling education for those that might not um, be familiar with it, though a number of listeners I'm sure to this podcast will be very aware, um, a non-award so they're not an AQF qualification at the moment, um, courses that are crucial for students who haven't gained entry to uni for many reasons, including that they come from disadvantaged or underrepresented uh, social backgrounds. So these are free alternative pathways to university study and have been robustly evaluated as enormously successful for, for those students who want to see where the uni could be for them, but really didn't have the have the academic wherewithal to engage. What we recommended in the AQF was that there be strong consideration given to an AQF qualification type, not necessarily aligned at band because these enabling programs range across time frames and, and student learning outcomes. But, they, but we give consideration to an AQF qualification type for domestic postgraduate post-secondary, I'm sorry, enabling programs once common learning outcomes for enabling programs had been developed. And through working with the National Association of Enabling Educators for Australia, and big shout out to them, they've now developed common learning outcomes for Australian enabling courses. So I'd like to see a next phase of this as the AQF gets further, as the revised AQF gets further socialised and um, an AQF governance body gets set up as we had also recommended that this qualification type be given um, the formal recognition that it needs, which will assist all sorts of equity outcomes in terms of um, its recognition and portability and for it to take its place in, the, in a post-COVID world and in which I assume is must be coming in a post-COVID-19 world and also to support uh, regional and remote and other disadvantaged cohorts accessing the further education that we know uh, they'll have to engage with over the course of their working life. There's some, there's some suggestions that there will be a 33% increase of learning over the, over the working life of, of any citizen. So also in terms of Industry 4.0, I think the AQF review has been very clear, as I must say has been Australian business, about the need for a connected tertiary education system. Post-secondary education and training really needs to be reconceived and redesigned as a diverse set of offerings that allow for better linkages and pathways between vocational and higher education which really can no longer be lineal and hierarchical. I think we need to recognise that throughout adulthood now, people will need to continue to develop new skills in different areas and at different levels. Uh, central to this objective, I think, is the government's imperative around reinvigorating the VET system and raising its standing. And I think higher education has a role to play in that. Just from what you've outlined there, Sally, the importance of transition pedagogy for all the different kinds of transitions, whether it be lifelong learning, whether it be credit pathways, whether it be a better utility of, of, of uh, and utilisation of enabling programs, uh, puts a very different framing on the, the way in which that transition pedagogy might might be applied and developed and enhanced across time. Uh, so fi finally, Sally, we, we work together in developing a longer term policy statement for equity in higher education. And we have you to thank for the report's title, The Best Chance for All. Does this thinking still have validity in this post-COVID-19 world that we're about to enter? Oh, Matt, thanks for that. Look, may I say first off what an absolute privilege it was to have worked on that with you and Nadine Zacharias and our Neshi colleagues and the great equity colleagues across the sector. And thanks for the title call out. I'm a bit proud of that, to be frank. For a non-creative, which I am as a lawyer, um, I'm still a bit chuffed with that title, moving the bar from the wonderful Lynn Martin work, A Fair Chance for All, to The Best Chance at All. See what we did there? It's pretty good. 
But anyway, to respond seriously, absolutely yes. How relevant could it not be? Um, as if the point needed any further underlining, COVID-19, I think, has just ramped up the intensity of the equity response needed to Industry 4.0's technological disrupt disruption around automation and artificial intelligence. There's growing recognition, and you would like to think that we will be in a better place after the wonderful year that 2020 has been. But growing recognition that as a nation, I think, for social cohesion and social justice, we can't tolerate the fact that our participation in higher education or in tertiary education more broadly remains strongly influenced by where you live, who your family is, what their finances are, and where you went to school, rather than intrinsic capability and social need. So many groups still remain significantly unrepresented in higher education and tertiary education more broadly. We know that in the, in the next period of time, formal qualifications will continue to be important for the labour market. Um, there's been some work done by government departments that suggest that more than 90% of new jobs expected to be created in Australia by 2023 will require a post-secondary qualification. We just need to pause and think about that. Australia is still facing the same profound social and economic challenges that existed in 2019 when we did the best chance for all. That frames the equity narrative that we need to all move forward on and equity most definitely has a role. And if I can just jump in there, Sally, and, and just point out that given your social origins and uh, your initial experiences in, in higher education, the ability for people to have a tremendous career and have a fantastic impact on, on the fabric of Australian society is, is not, not limited to, to only those that live in particular regions, etc. cetera. Um, uh, you, you are you know, proof of the pudding that, that equity matters and, and people from equity backgrounds uh, with equity you know, circumstances can can exert enormous influence in, in the world. And I, I think myself and listeners would, would um, want to give you a, a huge round of applause for everything that you've done for Australian higher education. I like the idea of being proof of the pudding. <laughs> um, uh, thank, thank you so much, Sally. That, that's been enormously enjoyable for me. Um, that's it for today's podcast. I hope listeners have enjoyed listening to this conversation and have got uh, renewed insights into the importance of, of transition pedagogy um, to higher education, uh, the AQF uh, leadership, the, the global connectivity of, of higher education activity uh, that's come out of this conversation, Sally. And for listeners, um, please subscribe. Uh, please rate this podcast and leave a rating as well. It'll help other people find this. And uh, thank you again, Sally. Thank you. Thank you.